Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sandy Melgar was convicted of the murder of her husband in August of 2017. From the time of her indictment all the way through to today, she's been represented by Mac Seacrest. Mac has been an attorney for over 40 years, and he worked with Sandy prior to the trial, through the trial, and is stuck by Sandy's side all the way to this day through her direct appeals. And today, we're going to hear directly from Mac as he explains the case to us, as well as his own experiences along the way. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The nature of HR, there are so many moving parts, and it's not just about the processes, but also about the people, because they're like different parts of a jigsaw that you can put together to help the organisation. Sage helps HR champions like Sherry spend less time on admin so they can spend more time bringing the team together. Sage, helping business flow. Mac, you've been a lawyer in Texas for over 40 years, right? That is correct. Okay. Can can you walk us through what what is your your experience? Have you always been a defense attorney? Well, no, I have a, a varied ex- experience, but uh, most of the time I've, I've uh, defended the citizen accused. But I graduated uh, from law school in 1977, and in Texas we do a lot of things differently. We have two Supreme Courts, uh, and the Supreme Court for criminal matters is called the Court of Criminal Appeals. I was fortunate enough to get a judicial clerkship right out of law school, and I clerked for a, a justice or a judge, as we refer to them here, uh, on the Court of Criminal Appeals for a year. And then after that, I went to uh, the Harris County District Attorney's Office, which is Houston, and I served as an assistant district attorney uh, in the trial and appellate divisions. And then after uh, my tenure there, I was appointed uh, an assistant federal public defender, 
and I uh, represented uh, the indigent accused in federal court. I did that for a couple of years, and then in uh, 1983, 84, I went into private practice, uh, and my practice is uh, limited exclusively to criminal uh, matters, but I'm kind of uh, different than a lot of other lawyers. I practice both in federal and state court, and I have an active trial and an appellate practice. Uh, and for the last 17, 18 years, I've I've been teaching law school at the University uh, of Houston Law Center, uh, teaching Texas criminal procedure. You do that in all of your free time. In all my free time, that's right. Right, that's exactly right. But no, it's it's a great opportunity. It's it's neat to see the upcoming lawyers, and uh, it's just a it's, it's a wonderful experience. I'm, I'm glad I'm able to do it. Excellent. So, how did you end up getting involved in Sandy Melgar's case? Because you you weren't her original attorney, right? I was not. Uh, Nick Owisi, a fine young lawyer, was representing uh, Sandy early on, and then about the time that uh, she was indicted, uh, which was middle of 2014, um, actually looked like July 21st, she was indicted, and about that time then uh, I came on board uh, to represent her. Okay. Um, so now, when you take a case, one one question I always have for anybody that works in, in defense, are, are you selective or are you able to be selective in the cases that you choose to represent? And meaning in what I'm getting at with that is, is do you try to only represent defendants that you truly believe are innocent? Okay, let me. Uh, that's uh, that's a question that my mom used to ask me all the time. <laughs> uh, actually, at least for me, it doesn't work that way uh, because of my uh, gray hair. Uh, I am able now to select my cases, and that's what I do. But early on, I quite frankly took about anything that came through the door. Uh, and early on, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, court-appointed work. Uh, and in fact, I uh, kind of cut my teeth trying death penalty cases here in, in Texas, because as you know, uh, the evil regime has always enjoyed uh, death penalty uh, prosecution. Uh, and so uh, I represented uh, several people uh, in very lengthy, drawn out uh, criminal trials uh, in Houston and death penalty litigation with some other fine lawyers. Uh, but quite frankly, uh, Bob, uh, uh, it, it's certainly true uh, that uh, you know a lot of people don't realize it, but the the system, uh, in fact, uh, I don't I don't want to say it's broken. I don't I, I'm not that jaundiced yet, but uh, in fact, uh, the system makes mistakes and makes mistakes all the time, and either they charge the wrong person or they charge the right person with the wrong crime, and so I guess it's a long way around saying that. Uh, I, I'm not particularly interested whether someone is innocent or guilty. You know, I took an oath to make sure that they are constitutionally treated the way that uh, they're they're entitled to be treated. So to me, that's the most important thing. But uh, actually, this is why Sandy's case is so important to me, is because I believe, as Ms. Allison, uh, my uh, niece, that she's innocent. And so this has been a, a just a, a a breakdown in the system as far as we are concerned, uh, and it's why we are obviously you know so committed 
uh, to her case. But but to answer your question, uh, it doesn't matter to me if someone is innocent or guilty. Uh, what matters to me is that they're treated fairly. And the bottom line is the prosecution has the burden of proof. If they're able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, so be it. If not, that person is entitled uh, to be acquitted. And do you feel, I, I, I obviously there was a result from the jury, but do you feel it just, just as a, not even as an, as, as Sandy's attorney, but just as an attorney and, and in writing your appellate briefs and everything, you, you've had to review the trial that you were a part of. Do you feel that the state actually proved their case against Sandy Melgar? No, they, they, they absolutely did not prove it. And of course, uh, I'm going to be criticized and, you know, bring it on. I have uh, big boy pants. But I'm going to be criticized as, as uh, you know, being someone that has sour grapes because we didn't prevail. It's not sour grapes. Uh, the bottom line is uh, this lady is innocent. The state did not prove its case for a number of reasons. Uh, and I, as I think this very lengthy and complicated record demonstrates, the investigators were biased. They were disengaged, disinterested, sloppy, lazy. Uh, and they didn't follow the ball. They didn't carry through on what uh, Sandy and every citizen has a right to expect. And what you end up with is this result. So what elements do you think the state really failed? Well, I guess let me back up on that is I, I couldn't even when, when I started when I started working on this case and I started reading the trial record, I just couldn't see. Even when, you know, I had Colleen Barnett on the show and asked her, you know, and was begging someone explain to me what proof there is that Sandy Melgar did this. And I, don't, I, and, and I understand circumstantial evidence is, is important, but show me circumstantial evidence that she did it, not circumstantial evidence that she could have done it. Were there any parts of her case or the prosecution's case that that concerned you at all with Sandy? No, I'll be frank. Uh, uh, I, I guess there's two levels of concern. I'm, I'm unconcerned about everything by definition because I'm paranoid. And I know that uh, even though uh, all accused are presumed to be innocent, in fact, when the dust settles, defense counsel too often uh, has to shoulder uh, you know, a burden to demonstrate that. Uh, that's just a pragmatic uh, observation of, of where we are in, in a system. But, you know, when I went through uh, the evidence, when I met Sandy, when I discussed with her uh, the case, and, of course, when I plowed through uh, the discovery, uh, I, I kept scratching my head, and, 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 and our team kept scratching our head, you know, you know, where's the beef? Where's the crime here? We, we never could find it. Uh, and, and beyond relying on this uh, alleged investigation, we went far beyond that. We issued uh, a number of subpoenas. We we gathered information from a number of other sources. We 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 dug as deep as we thought we could, uh, and we were just uh, stymied at every turn. Where we were, we were always unable to see how it was that the police, then ultimately the prosecution, could conclude that they thought they had a case to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, I agree. You know, when I started looking at the case, when it was, you know, this case was sent to me uh, by Liz Rose's sister-in-law asking me to take a look at it. And, and in every case when we're reviewing, I'm looking for 
you know, okay, what are they not telling me? Where's the bad part? You know, where's the, where's the affair? Where's the, the $2 million life insurance policy? Where's right. And and I was like, I just kept looking for where are the challenges in this case? And, and I, and I never saw them. I, I could never come up with any reason for Sandy to do this, nor could I come up with any evidence that she actually did. Well, I, I think you're right on both fronts. I mean, here's the problem, and quite frankly, the problem we knew that we were confronted uh, with from the get-go is you have a situation where uh, sweet Jaime Melgar is literally slaughtered. Uh, Sandy is, although she's been uh, injured, uh, she is alive, uh, and they, you know, look at the uh, front door and the back door, and they look at the windows, and they don't see that any of uh, those points of entry have been breached. Uh, and because uh, we have a living spouse, then by definition, she's the number one suspect. Now, quite frankly, I, okay, maybe I can live with that for 30 or 40 minutes. But then you have to start deconstructing the evidence and looking at the case to see, okay, uh, obviously she is a person of interest. We could all reasonably agree on that. But what is it about the evidence that now establishes that she is, in fact, the culprit? And that's where they stumble because there's uh, just no evidence that gets gets them there. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I've I've said from the beginning that Absolutely. Sandy should have been a person of interest. She should have been questioned. You know, th- th- that makes sense. But then the big the big question I have is how how do they go from the night that she was arrested where they try to file charges and there's not enough evidence to a year and a half later, they get the charges approved. But in- unless I'm missing something and you can correct me if I'm wrong, nothing changed between that amount of time. No, actually, uh, absolutely nothing uh, Nothing changed because they didn't get off their ass and do anything. I mean, uh, here, here's a, a good example, uh, and you know this from your thorough understanding of the record, is that when they're badgering her uh, during their, you know, they, they characterize it as an interview, but clearly it's an, an interrogation, and they ask her leading questions, and they cut her off literally over 30 times. That's not uh, Seacrest using a, a made-up number. That's If you go through the transcript, that's what they're doing. They have an agenda. They're trying to you know, get her to agree to their version of events as opposed to asking her open-ended questions to try to find out what in the world happened here. And the reality is, at the end, they tell her that uh, they're going to leave no stone unturned. They're going to talk to all of her family and friends and neighbors, you're going to hear a lot from us. We're not going to leave you alone. I mean, that's what they tell her. And the reality is, uh, one of the detectives, he works on the case on December the 23rd. That's the date they go to the house uh, after she's found uh, tied up, locked uh, in a closet. Then they interrogate her up until about three o'clock in the morning, although they take a position they stopped at one o'clock. Well, that's that's uh, BS because, in fact, uh, other records show that she was there at the substation for an additional two hours that they can't account for. And so now we got the December 23rd, December 24th, and then on December the 26th, they interview Elizabeth, 
rose and on December the 28th, they come back in the neighborhood and they talk to a couple of people. That's end of game. So this, you're, you're, you're going to see a lot of us. We're going to leave no stone unturned. Four days prior to the end of 2012, one of the detectives off the case, he didn't do, he didn't do squat. And the other detective, Carousel, does very little else except from time to time his superiors require him to do something or the DA's office tells him he needs to do something. So he kind of begrudgingly does it. But they are, as I said earlier, Bob, they're disengaged. They're not doing anything. And then the, the, the suggestion is, well, you know, why hasn't the defense found the culprit? You know, you guys left the scene on uh the early morning hours of December 24th, the scene is cleared, the, the scene is over with, and then you wait over a year and a half to indict Sandy, and you and so in the interim, we have access to no investigative uh, memoranda, no lab reports, no nothing, but we're supposed to be conducting some kind of fulsome investigation. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible, uh, but that's the situation we found ourselves in. Well, and, I mean, I can't reconcile, and maybe you can help connect the dots for me, but I've never been able to balance the lack of the, you know, the, the fact that Corazal was so disengaged and there was just no investigation into Sandy or anyone else for all that time. And then we come up to a trial, and then at some point, the, the DA's office, Colleen Barnett specifically, decides, I'm going to try this case. And also now it becomes this huge priority that she's pushing to, to convict this woman with no with no evidence, I, I I can't reconcile those two things. Where it seemed like it wasn't a priority for all of the previous DAs for the police, how did it become a priority? Do you have any idea what that trigger was? Well, let, let, let me let me bring you up to snuff on a couple of, of facts. I think your characterization is just brutally uh, factual and candid. But uh, let me give you a little bit of, of extra information. Carousel is totally disengaged, and of course, at some point, he leaves the sheriff's department and he goes over to the district attorney's office, the same district attorney's office who's investigating Sandy, and he's hired as a district attorney investigator. And the DA's office here in Houston has a number, uh, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, you know, uh, uh, several dozen investigators that assist the prosecutors. So somehow he gets hired by the DA's office, uh, and then he runs into legal trouble himself, and so uh, he basically is forced to leave and resign. But in the interim, in the interim, uh, I'm convinced uh, that because he's now in close quarters over the DA's office, uh, I'm convinced that uh, he had every opportunity to uh, try to get the prosecutors to get interested in this case. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but it doesn't take a, you know, a Rhodesian scholar to figure that out. So uh, ultimately, he's uh, he's forced to leave, and then he gets rehired by the sheriff's department, but he, he lies on applications when he does that, so ultimately he gets he gets terminated. But in the interim, Bob, is uh, uh, Allison and I and, and uh, Billy Belk, who's an esteemed Houston police officer, uh, a retired Houston police officer who was just uh, probably the number one homicide detective during his uh, tenure uh, uh, in law enforcement here in Houston. We went over the district attorney's office 
uh, and to have meetings and try to explain to them why this case needed to go away. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, you know, we were treated professionally, uh, I would say courteously, but we couldn't get any traction. We couldn't get anybody to, you know, stand up and make the call and put this case to bed, which was amazing to us because, uh, as you well know, the family is very much behind Sandy. Uh, Herman and Maria Melgar, you know, Herman, of course, being Jaime's brother, uh, totally supportive of Sandy, did not want this case to be prosecuted, but we couldn't get any traction. And then ultimately, uh, when the case was getting close to trial, as you say, all the prosecutors kicked it down the road, and then uh, Barnett uh, decided that she wanted to pick it up and run with it, and that's where we ended up with you know, Billy Belk was, I was really, really impressed with his, his trial testimony. At what point in the process did you bring Belk on to investigate? I want to say, and let me be clear here. I really didn't bring him on to investigate, uh, although uh, the prosecution, that was kind of their spin, but it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't accurate. What, what we did was uh, I wanted to reach out and get a real detective with a, a lot of homicide uh, experience to basically do a, a proctological examination on this alleged investigation. And so uh, I looked around and we thought about different people and then Billy Belk came to mind. Uh, I, I had known Billy uh, before. Uh, Billy had been on some cases that I had been involved with against him. Uh, again, in, uh, just a, a first-rate uh, detective, impeccable credentials, had never before, and to my knowledge since, testified on behalf of a defendant at a at a jury trial. On the other hand, he had testified dozens of times on behalf of the Harris County District Attorney's Office, and had testified on behalf of Barnett before. So uh, his his. Uh, creds are just simply impeccable. But we brought him on, uh, on, I want to say it must have been, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine months after, after we got into the case. And I told Billy, looking to my ball to eyeball, said, Billy, anything in my file is yours. Uh, and you can have access to any witness that you want. And so we gave him a complete set of the files. Uh, we let him talk to Sandy. Uh, we gave him, of course, all the over nearly 1,100 photographs, videotapes, everything, the DNA, all the laboratory reports, and uh, he plowed through that stuff. And uh, you know, his testimony speaks for itself. But he was uh, unflinchingly convinced that the state had not proved their case, and that Sandy, in fact, was innocent, and in fact. Uh, there has to be a home in, uh, invasion type somewhere out there uh, that committed this crime. But now, of course, the uh, trail is cold. Right. I mean, he's in, in direct contrast to Belk, because it seems to me that he actually did. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem to me. I mean, I think it's it's on the record, really. He did more investigative work on this case than Corazal did. Oh, I, I think I think that's clear. You know, if, if you pour through the offense reports, and you're going to see, and I'm and I made tried to make a big deal about it at trial, 
But Carousel really doesn't even pin his first offense report until months and months later in the case, which is incredible because begrudgingly he had to admit the reason that you do offense reports and the reason you do them timely is because they're uploaded into the system. And so uh, fellow uh, investigators can have access to the work that you've done that may assist them or supplement what they're doing in their investigation. Well, he, he he couldn't care less about that. So whatever it was he was doing, his report reports don't really even come into play until way, way late in the game. And if you break them down day by day, topic by topic, the vast majority of, of what he quote unquote did uh, is centered around the literally a few days around the actual murder. And then notwithstanding that he's getting information from Nick Owisi to follow through on, he's getting information from uh, Elizabeth Melgar. Uh, He's also uh, not following up on that. He's not returning phone calls. He's not responding to emails. Uh, So he's sitting on his butt. He's, uh, you know, he's convinced, as you mentioned a moment ago, he has the temerity of of reaching out to the DA's office, try to get charges filed after the uh, cessation of the interrogation, but while Carpenter uh, and others are still at the scene swabbing for DNA evidence and fingerprints. So he he doesn't uh, give a flip about any of that. Uh, and uh, at least, thank God, they didn't file charges at that time. But uh, uh, he's not doing anything. He's disengaged. He's made up his mind from the get-go that she has to be the one who did it. Uh, he's talked to her for whatever reason. He doesn't believe her. And quite frankly, he doesn't have to believe her. I, I don't care if he believes her or not, but he still has to do an investigation and come up with evidence to establish that she did it. And of course, that never happened. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Right. And, and that led to something that, that was seems to be pretty unorthodox. I mean, I'm, I'm not terribly uh, educated in the in the criminal justice world, but I, I read a lot of trial transcripts. And, and in your case, one thing that you did was a little unique is you actually called the lead detective, Sean Carlzal, to the stand. What what prompted you to make that move? Well, the, the reality really reality was that they knew he was radioactive. Uh, he had been terminated from the district attorney's office, and he went to the sheriff's department, as I said, and lied on his application concerning whether he had ever been disciplined before at the DA's office, and he had been disciplined at the DA's office for backdating a search warrant 
return in another case. And so I had filed a public information request, uh, open records request uh, with various agencies to get all that information. And uh, the DA's office knew that uh, uh, they were going to have a hard time sponsoring him as a witness. But I decided to put him on. Uh, because uh, for the very reason of what we've been talking about, I wanted to demonstrate through him uh, that he didn't do doodly squat in the case, that he wasn't objective, that he had made up his mind, and I wanted to attempt to establish uh, just how piss poor the investigation was and the fact that uh, the jury couldn't rely upon it. So, uh, But in a way, it was amazing. You know, one, one thing was very telling when they put on uh, Sergeant Doucet, the other detective, through him, uh, they offer Sandy's interrogation, and it's videoed, as you know. And when you look at the videotape, you can see Sandy in a corner, and you see these two gentlemen that are flanking her. And they go through the entire direct examination of Doucet, including questions concerning the interrogation, and never once does the prosecution ever ask do say, oh, by the way, who's that other person sitting in the room with you? Uh, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Well, he wasn't out of sight. And so, of course, on cross-examination, uh, I had to bring out that, you know, that's Carousel sitting over there. And then I asked, I said, is the state going to be putting him on the witness stand? Of course, I knew they weren't, which prompted an objection. But, uh, the rea- reality was they couldn't afford uh, to sponsor him as a witness. Of course, uh, as you can also see, I think a fair uh, reading of his examination reveals it was like pulling teeth. Uh, he did the old Ronald Reagan, I don't recall, I don't remember, over and over again kind of stuff. But then when uh, the prosecutor asked him questions, he was sharp, clear, concise, uh, so he was playing games, uh, uh, which which we fully expected that he would. But we thought it was essential that the jury get to see just exactly what it what it was in this case, who allegedly was the lead detective. Well, yeah, I mean that that testimony was painful to read because it was it was very obvious how biased he was. It seemed like you, I, I believe, in one bench conference, you referred to him as numb nuts. I did, yeah. Yeah, which seemed, which yeah. was a pretty accurate depiction, I think, of of his testimony. But yeah, you you could see that he was he was absolutely playing games with you. The, honestly, the most shocking part of Carzal's testimony to me when I read it was that Barnett tried to get him declared as a hostile witness to her. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it was totally disingenuous uh, on her part, and and much to uh, Judge Johnson's credit, she saw through it and shut that down. I mean, quite frankly, I. Yeah, I assume from the get-go, because he was the lead detective and because the DA's office wasn't calling him, that nearly as a matter of law, he should be denominated an adverse witness. But uh, the judge wanted to hear a little bit of testimony, but after a little bit of testimony, uh, she didn't have any problem in recognizing that uh, uh, obviously he was not adverse uh, to the state. He was on their team. Right. One thing that I, I, I've been dying to ask you is, you know, after after reading the whole record, the, the verdict in this case is shocking to me, and I'm sure it was shocking to you. What do you think went wrong? How did how did that happen? How did the, how did that trial, in your opinion, end up with a guilty verdict? 
You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I'll tell you this, uh, Bob. I've been doing this a long time. Uh, you know, and I'm seasoned. I'm experienced. I've lost before. I have won before, you know. And again, uh, like I like to say, I have a lot of gray hair to prove it. But I'm still uh, scratching uh, my head and my heart and my soul. I do not understand it. Uh, I think, and I'm not here to, to bash a jury. I appreciate uh, the citizens coming down and, and uh, participating in the process. And they had to go through a whole lot of crap and, uh, uh, you know, three weeks worth. Uh, now, I don't think we wasted their time. We didn't play games. We were laser focused. But, uh, you know, I, I just simply don't, I, I simply don't get it. Uh, I don't understand how a rational trier of fact could come to that conclusion. Uh, and I, I just, you know, and especially they weren't out, except, you know, they, they, they deliberated over the course of two days. They weren't out long enough. I've had, uh, I've had juries out, you know, five, six days and, uh, they weren't out long enough. Uh, I think, they uh, bought into the state's argument for whatever reason, uh, and uh, they capitulated far too early. Uh, I get it. You know, and certainly I will say this. They're certainly entitled to their verdict. I have no problem with that. But they're not entitled to appellate courts upholding their verdict. Uh, that's, that's something they're not entitled to. So you've lost cases in the past. Have, have there been other cases where... At the end of the day, the verdict comes in, you lost the case, and you can sit back and reflect and think, well, I, I can see why we lost. The prosecution proved their case, or when you were a prosecutor the other way around. Have you had cases where you can understand why you didn't prevail? Yeah, I, I, I certainly have. Like I say, you know, I've, I've had, since I do federal cases, we don't go to trial as often in federal court, and I do a lot of appellate practice, so that takes up a lot of my time, but I don't know. I have, I've tried, you know, 125, 150 uh, jury trials, which is still a pretty good chunk. And I have uh, never before been disappointed like this. I certainly have had cases that I have lost and understand why. Uh, actually, uh, more times than not, it's not particularly hard to figure out why one lost. You did the best you could. But clearly the evidence was overwhelming or there was something you just couldn't, you know, possibly get by. And uh, when I have won cases, uh, quite frankly, I understand why, because uh, we simply had uh, evidence uh, that established innocence or we were able to, to establish that the government had not proven their case. But I, I'm still befuddled by this. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And the bottom line is, again, with all respect to the jury, their ultimate decision is simply as a matter of law, not rational, uh, under the facts of this case. Have you become more personally invested in this case than than others because of that? Yeah, I, I would to be utterly frank with you. I would say that you know I have. I have lost sleep, and I'm not asking for you know anybody to pat me on the back. I'm just telling you up front. I've lost sleep. I've second-guessed uh, myself, uh, my sweet, uh, hard-charging, dedicated Allison, my niece. Uh, she's had a hard time with it uh, because we are invested uh, in Sandy's case. We We like her as a human being. We believe in her. We trust her. We respect her. You know, going back to what you said early on, you know, we have, because the 
the prosecution and the police refused to do it, uh, we looked very, very hard at Sandy and looked at her relationship with Jaime and looked at her relationship with other family members. Uh, this is one of the sweetest women I've ever met. And there's, there's no domestic abuse. There's no, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. They had a beautiful relationship. Don't have to listen to me about that. That's what the uh, uncontradicted evidence shows. Uh, and when you, when you look at something like that and then you look at the fact that, uh, the police, uh, didn't give a shit and they didn't conduct any kind of meaningful in- investigation. They basically closed book on this case literally within a few days. Uh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heart wrenching, but, uh, we feel, we feel confident that we have an excellent case on appeal and that the court of appeals uh, will look at this case objectively uh, and uh, call it the way they see it. In the process of of writing your appellate brief and reviewing the record, it, when you went back through your work, which has to be, I, I imagine, it has to be kind of an eerie experience to go back and reread every single word you said. Is there anything that that you'd wish that you had done differently, or that you would do differently if you had it to do over again? Well, that's a, a fair question, but it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to address because, you know, I look back, uh, we put a lot of work in preparing our cross-examination outlines and questions and, and the backup material. And quite frankly, when I look at, uh, when I read some of the cross-examinations, I feel very comfortable that we, we made the point we were trying to make that we exposed the, the fallacy of the state's argument. But I'd be less than candid with you, Bob, and it's hard to be really specific, but I'd be less than candid that, you know, if, if the case were retried again, then of course, uh, I would have to make adjustments and I would have to, you know, kind of second guess and decide maybe there's certain areas that I need to stay away from, or maybe there's certain areas I need to explore, uh, in greater depth. Uh, but that's, you know, that's about all I can say about that. You know, and for, for what it's worth, you know, of all the, all the transcripts I've read, which hasn't been a, a huge number, but you know, usually when I'm looking at these wrongful conviction cases, I can see very clearly how it happened. You know, some other Texas cases we worked in at eight case, we, I, I could see where they went wrong. I could see where the prosecutor either did a great job or maybe they cheated a little or where the defense attorney messed up. And, and I just, it, it was part of what confused me so much about this case is I couldn't see that Colleen Barnett made a compelling argument proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And I also couldn't see anywhere where, you drop the ball. I mean, usually when I'm reading these transcripts, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I'm as as I'm reading something during cross examination, and I'm like, no, 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 you got to say this or do this or why didn't you say this? And I and and I honestly, again, for what it's worth, I I didn't see that with you. The only the only thing that I saw in your transcripts that I wanted to ask you about, where I or I wondered why you made the decision you did, and I think I know the answer. Um, but was when Celestina Rossi testified and Barnett kind of hid the ball with with her report from you. I guess question one would be. Were you surprised by where Rossi's testimony went? And two, why did you decide to go ahead and and let that come in when she clearly violated the rules of discovery? You know, let me let me tell you about that. Uh, and, and again, uh, and I certainly could be too close to it. Uh, and, and I'm the first to admit that I'm not entirely objective. Uh, 
you know, I, I've got to be fair here. I'm, I'm criticizing the detectives for not being objective. Uh, and being an advocate, of course, uh, I'm not objective either. But but I'm also not charged with the duty of uh, investigating a case and um, uh, proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. But, you know, uh, to be brutally frank, when I looked at uh, Rossi's report, uh, I don't think it had laid a finger on Sandy. It doesn't go to the heart of anything. And quite frankly, I thought... Uh, I'd be interested uh, in, in your viewpoint here. I thought her testimony was helpful to us because, you know, the the location of where uh, Jaime would have had to have been when he was slaughtered, uh, which means he was actually in the closet uh, and his hand could not have been uh, out uh, any, uh, any more than the threshold of the door where there's some drip blood. Uh, I thought all that was very helpful to us and all that, uh, blood spatter, you know, testimony, uh, and I, and I've had it in other cases where it can be incredibly inculpatory or exculpatory, but I didn't think any of that, uh, established their case at all. It certainly didn't, it wasn't anything about that that pointed to Sandy. Uh, and, and to me, that was the linchpin uh, of, of, of uh, what I was trying to achieve. Yeah, and I agree completely. And that's why I was wondering if you were surprised, because I was when I read it. So I had the advantage of I had the report prior to reading those transcripts. And so I understood why, you, you know, you said, you know, well, look, give me a minute to look at it and then and we'll go ahead and proceed not to clear the mistrial. Because there was nothing, there was nothing there of any substance. You know, it's what a four or six page report. It's mostly pictures. There was nothing there. And there certainly wasn't anything there was pointing towards Sandy. But then I read her testimony and I was, I was completely surprised, but I, I did not expect her to go on for as long as she did about how the crime scene is staged and, and how that she doesn't think this is a home invasion and nothing was stolen. And, and that's the part that surprised me was I was expecting her to testify about the blood spatter. And then she did for a minute. And then away she went in a completely different direction. Right. Well, let, let me let me talk about that. Is is unlike uh, under Texas discovery rules, unlike the federal rules under Federal Rule 16, if you have expert witness uh, witnesses that you're going to call, you have to give your adversary notice of their name, their specialty. How can you contact them? You also have to lay out what the anticipated testimony is. Uh, and it has to be somewhat specific. Texas Rule 3914 of the code, a criminal procedure doesn't require that. All we have to, all the state has to do and the defense has to do is to give the name of the witness. So the fact that she had a report about blood spatter didn't prevent her from talking about these other, other things. But since you brought it up, I thought, Actually, um, although she clearly was on the state's team as well, and, and uh, someone who who was always going to be aligned with the prosecution, you know, this business about the the scene was staged. Well, why is it staged? Well, there wasn't anything stolen. Well, that's that's BS. There there were clearly items that uh, were missing from the residence, and then she said, well, it was appeared to be staged too because there was no breaking and entering of the windows of the front or back door. Well, uh, what about the interior door that led from the garage into the house? Well, I don't know anything about that. And, of course, 
as you know, uh, when Carpenter, and he's the head CSU guy, he took, you know, dozens of photographs of the windows and the doors, but conveniently never took photographs of the interior door, which we were able to show uh, was broken or at least didn't work. And so uh, what I'm getting at is she's reaching these quote-unquote conclusions that there must have been staged because there, you know, there wasn't broken glass, there wasn't splintered doors. Well, nobody, you know, at least this side of the lawsuit, never contended that somebody came in through a, a window or the front door. They came in through an open garage door and then entered the house through the interior door that was not secured, in fact, could not lock. And all this she's oblivious to because guess what? She never went to the scene of the offense. And guess what? I'm glad you're sitting down. She never took, uh, spoke to any, any of the uh, investigators. So that's, you know, that, that's her basis of knowledge. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And again, this was another one of those points where I thought, like, how was the jury not seeing these? Because I thought you did a great job on cross-examination of, as I think the way I stated it in previous episodes of the podcast was, with most of these states witnesses cross examination was the was the unraveling of direct you know you had you had people that were overstating that it was and i guess it always kind of is but it was more so in this case the way i read it where you had these extremely biased states witnesses that were overstating their opinions they were they were pontificating about facts when they had no actual knowledge of you know it, with rossi it's a perfect example there's no she she testifies that absolutely there's no forced entry and then in cross, you remind her that she has no idea if the front door even lo- or the the entry door from the garage even locks. But, you know, I say on that point, uh, I actually wanted to stand up and cheer when I was reading Billy Belk's testimony when he finally when he gets up there and explains it. Like, why are we talking about all these other doors? There's a fucking open garage door right there. Right. Like that's obviously important. You know, let, let me tell you something we stumbled upon, and and uh, and I was, you know, I thought this was a home run, but you know what I know. You, you recall the next door neighbor, Mrs. Uh, Odile Robertson, uh, nice lady. She was a neighbor to she and her husband were neighbors to uh, Sandy and Jaime. But when we interviewed her, and we didn't ask her this, it just leapt out of her mouth. Uh, she said, "You know, Jaime had a real bad habit of leaving the garage door up." And so this wasn't some kind of fluke, you know, uh, he had, uh, he had a bad habit of not closing the garage door. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, when we were able be one thing, you brought that out through, you know, uh, a friend of Sandy or the, you know, a cousin or something. This comes from the, from the state's witness, the next door neighbor. Uh, and so uh, that, that garage door was up and the interior door uh, was easy to breach. Of course, that's how Herman Railgar gets into the house. Uh, and uh, the state did everything it could, uh, you know, to stay away from that. Uh, in fact, if you look at the direct examination of, of Carpenter, they never asked him 
uh, a question about was the garage door open when you got there. Well, the garage door is open, and we, we had to establish that based not only upon uh, their investigation but some of our own, that there's testimony that that door was seen open at least as early as about 7.15 in the morning. And, of course, as you know, the police don't get out there till 5-ish or so or 4.45 or something. So it had been open all day long at the very least. And, of course, it's our view that uh, uh, it was open that evening that, you know, and I don't know what happened. Did, did Jaime, did, you know, I don't have to prove what happened, but did Jaime uh, mistakenly hit the wrong button? Uh, in fact, uh, even got Rossi to concede that that certainly can happen. Did he hit the wrong button when he was trying to close the garage door and open up the wrong door? When he got out of the, out of the hot tub because of the barking dogs, uh, did he hear something? Did he go out in the garage? Did he open up the door? I don't know. Did did the intruders have a, a device, since this was an old system, did they have a device where they could have uh, opened up the door themselves? I don't know. But the reality is the door was open. Right. And now did – that's actually – I don't know if I missed it or if it wasn't in there, but I didn't realize that Odell Robertson had said that he had a bad habit of leaving the door open. Did she testify to that? Yeah, she testified to that. If you go back through uh, my cross-examination of hers, uh, she admitted – and I say admitted, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I thought she was a fair witness. But uh, I asked her, do you uh, – uh, Heidi had a bad habit of opening uh, – leaving the, the garage door open. Do you remember when the, my uh, private investigator, Brian Binken, uh, came out to see you and you told him that? And she said yes. So, yeah, she acknowledged that. Yeah, and that, that's a testimony that I'll, I, I want to go back through. As a matter of fact, now that I'm thinking about it, we never uh, we never actually talked about that testimony on the on the podcast. But, yeah, that's it's interesting how all of that gets just gets ignored, you know, and as far as the I want to kind of circle back to the state's witnesses, because just just how the kind of the feel of the trial, um, you know, in contrast to Corazal, who was extremely hostile how did you feel about? I was actually surprised when I read the cross examination of Doucet in how he he seemed at least it read that way to me that that he was actually cooperating with you and was and was and was willing to make some concessions about the botched investigation, which was another thing that just blew me away. That the, I want to say is the jury listening that their own investigator is saying that the investigation was botched. Yeah, I think I, I think uh, I think that's a, a, a fair assessment. You know. Uh, during the the direct examination or a cross examination rather, and afterwards, uh, uh, I was surprised that uh, we got as much uh, favorable favorable information out of them that we did. In fact, uh, I remember specifically uh, Billy Balk and I talked about it. We we're both kind of amazed uh, that uh, in fact we didn't have to fight tooth and nail every, you know, every question, uh, to get him to, to, uh, answer, uh, you know, answer our question. Uh, uh, I, I thought, but I'll tell you this, you know, everything in the world cuts both ways. You know, the, the good news is we were able to get that a lot of helpful information out. On the other hand, the fact that he didn't fight us and was willing to concede some things, no doubt, uh, enhanced his credibility. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's always a double-edged sword. I mean, you take, you know, turn around on carousel, you know, carousel, uh, you had a fight to get much, uh, out, out from him. But I think on the other hand, you know, he obviously showed his colors, 
uh, are his, you know, his feathers, and 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 one could really see what we were dealing with, uh, having to deal with him. Yeah, I can't imagine that the jury put much credibility in him. I want to hit on where we're. This is fa- I could talk to you all day, and I know we're running a little long, so I want I want to hit on on a couple more things. One thing, real quick. Um, we had some discussion, uh, on the, on the show here a, a while back and it's, it's been up in the air. So I wanted to ask you directly. There's been a question about the computer forensic report that Eric Devlin did in his testimony about the logins on Sandy's computers. So he, he testified at trial that, that there was no human activity on the computer during the relevant time period. And then there was, you know, some people had said they spoke to him and that he said that, know that those were human logins and then you know i was going back and forth with allison have you reached back out and spoke with eric devlin since the time of trial and and, and what did he tell you well it, it, it's 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 easy and it's uh it's it's to the point i have actually spoken with him twice uh concerning these rumors that uh he's been contacted by other parties and has changed his position and he has assured me that that is not true uh, he says he has not in any way uh, told uh, other folks that uh, uh, either his testimony or his report uh, is in error in any way, and he stands behind it. You know, I've known uh, Eric for some time, and as you probably figure out, you know, his, his pedigree is law enforcement. He was with the Harris County DA's office for a number of years. He, he's a computer nerd. I say that lovingly. And he's the one that put uh, their kind of child exploitation unit together, and he's a, a nationally renowned expert on forensics. And uh, uh, he has not backed away one iota uh, from his report or from his testimony. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, you know, again, a typical activity by the state, they go through the motions of doing a forensic examination themselves, but it doesn't go anywhere, uh, and it takes forever for them to do it. And I think it's actually they kind of begrudgingly do it toward the end. But ultimately, uh, I take that information, and then I turn it over to uh, Eric. And of course, Eric uh, says, no, I'm interested in that information, but I want to personally inspect you know, the hard drives and do whatever they do. And so he got a, a, a clone of everything that the, uh, the state had. So not only did he do, uh, his, you know, investigation, Bob, but he did even more so. And of course, bottom line, no girlfriend, no boyfriend, no interest in insurance, no financial problems, no inquiry about how can I lock myself up in a, in a, closet, how do I tie myself up, all those kind of word parameters that he's done for homicide detectives for years, zero zilch nada. And so again, uh, they don't put on forensic um, evidence of that nature, so we're compelled to do it. Right. And I thought his testimony was, you know, I think it spoke volumes when you put him on and you talked to him about what was found on the computers. And then Barnett came up to cross-examine him and wanted to talk about tying knots and not about the computers at all. Well, that's right. And that's something she did uh, throughout the trial is you put on witnesses to testify about X. And then, uh, you know, 
she obviously doesn't want to go there because uh, it doesn't help her. So then she starts t- uh, talking about why, and she did it. She did it several times, you know. And again, I thought the uh, jury could see through that as well, but you know, I guess they didn't. Right now, in regards to Devlin, I assume that because you did make the decision to put him on the stand, and certainly you wouldn't do that if you thought there was any damaging evidence. Did you guys have discussions about his report, or even like specifically those logins prior to trial, so you knew what you were dealing with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not going to put on any witness list. I, you know, know what it is they're going to testify to. But, but there's also another component, which is which is uh, pretty much uh, identical to Billy Belk. You know, I, I don't set a parameter with an expert. You know, call it the way you see it. Do what you do what you can, and I, I want you to tell me the good, the bad, the ugly. And so, uh, uh, and and quite frankly, I I have an expertise in some of these issues, but I don't have any expertise uh, in uh, cell phone technology and computers. That's not you know I'm 67 years old. You know I don't, I don't understand that shit. So uh, that's why I got first rate expert to do it. And uh, we didn't model his testimony. Just give me a report and see what you have. I certainly told him though. You know we're interested. Duh, uh, whether there's uh, you know any kind of uh, uh, third party uh, contact here, you know, did Jaime have a, a paramour? Did Sandy have a paramour? Was somebody pissed off at either one or both of them? So you know, I gave him some parameters, but go through the information. So he not only you know uh, swabbed what it was that uh, Harris County forensic types did, but he he did his own analysis as well. Right. Okay. So the the last thing I want I want to talk about and I've kind of saved it for last because I know with Sandy's case being now in active appeal I know you're limited on what you can talk about so I I guess what I, what I'll do is is just just leave it to you and, and ask you open ended what do you want to share about Sandy's appeal as far as where you feel the strengths are in in the briefs and and where do you think things are going well let me let me and thank you for giving me that opportunity. We put a, a hell of a lot of work uh, in her appeal, her brief again, not asking for any kudos. she deserves no less, but as you know, you know we the initial uh, brief that that we filed you know, under Texas appellate law, you're limited to fifteen thousand words that's one five zero zero zero. Uh, and which usually comes out to be about 50, 60 pages. Well, our first brief was 325 pages and over 97,000 words. Well, it's too long. I get it. But, um, you know, uh, you have a very excellent, f- uh, felicity, uh, with this record. It's complicated. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of minutiae. There's a lot of nuance. And quite frankly, uh, I'm glad that I was afforded the opportunity to do the direct appeal because I tried the case along with Allison and I understand the record. And it's not my spin on what it is. You know, every time I pin a sentence in the brief, I got to cite the record. But uh, ultimately, we filed a 205 page brief because the court said the first one's too long and the, the second one's still 57,000 words. But I think if anybody is just open minded and objective and they read the brief and they read, you know, all the nearly 200 footnotes, it's a walkthrough, it's a map of what happened at trial. It's a synthesis of actually uh, everything the prosecution put on and everything that the defense put on. And when you look at that, I think it's a compelling picture to establish that when the dust settles, no rational trier of fact could have reached the verdict 
that this jury did. And that's the question before the court. Now, I'll tell you, and I have been successful in the past in reversing cases on legal sufficiency, but it's it's a difficult argument. It's a difficult argument uh, in the vast majority of cases because if you get into a credibility determination, then pretty much uh, you're not going to get very far. So if you have a case, let's say, where uh, I'm accused of murder and my defense is self-defense, and I testify, hey, you know, I had to kill this guy in self-defense, and there's two eyeball witnesses said, no, he didn't. Uh, the other guy wasn't a threat. Well, now you're in a swearing match. Uh, and if you're in a swearing match, then, you know, tie goes to the jury. Have a nice day. In this case, though, we're not in a swearing match. You know, there, there is no confession. There is no eyeball witness. And when you look at all the evidence, and you can denominate it circumstantial, but when you look at all the evidence, you look at the forensic evidence, and when you go through the record chronologically or topically, and you seriously read everything that's there and consider everything that was before the jury uh, as a matter of law, uh, this decision is not rational based upon what this record shows, maybe more importantly, what it doesn't show, and based upon the case law. Yeah, I, th- I thought the the brief was solid. I mean, obviously, my opinion of the record itself is that there that 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 to, that to me, and I want to ask you to tell me what you think is the strongest because you probably shouldn't do that. But I can tell you from my opinion, I think the the legally insufficient argument was the strongest point of error because that's that's the biggest glaring issue was there wasn't enough evidence for any jury to find find her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And then your other two original points of error were the uh, bringing of the religion and then the jury misconduct. And then you you had to drop one of those, right, for the revised version. I I, I decided, you know, and I've slept on it, but I decided to drop the, the religious argument, uh, although you will see in this uh, second version, the final version of the brief, it is covered as far as uh, apprising the Court of Appeals uh, of what took place uh, so they can, you know, judge it all in context. But quite frankly, uh, what drives this boat is the legal sufficiency of, of the evidence. And we had to do every, everything we could to maximize being in a position where we could get as much of that information before the jury as we could. And quite frankly, there's another upside. If we prevail on legal sufficiency of the evidence as a matter of constitutional law, she cannot be retried. Oh really? I didn't realize that. So if it's yes. if it's thrown out, that's that that's it. It's over. It's over. There's a couple of cases: Green versus Massey, Burks versus United States. It's a jeopardy event. Uh, if, if there's a reversal for trial error, then the prosecution can retry the case. But if the reversal is because the evidence is legally insufficient, jeopardy attaches. There can be no further trial. Oh, that's fantastic! That and actually, that makes perfect sense. If they if everything went through the trial and there just wasn't enough evidence, it becomes double jeopardy at that point. That's right. Yeah. So the the big question that everybody wants to know is what happens next um, with with my my limited involvement with the Texas uh, post conviction work. It's not a fast process, but we're not guaranteed a a hearing, right? But that that's what that's what you're asking for is to actually argue this before a judge. Well, no, let me, the way it works, we are, uh, she has an absolute right to appeal her case to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals has to consider her case and will. 
The question then becomes, uh, do we get oral argument? We're not entitled to that. They, they pick and choose. My guess would be uh, that we would get oral argument in this case. The prosecution now has a duty and burden to file their brief. And once they file their brief, I have the right on behalf of Sandy to file the last brief, the reply brief. Uh, so we'll get the last word in the appellate court. So once the state files their brief, then I will do a rejoinder. Uh, and then the case will then be before the Court of Appeals uh, for them to, uh, in all probability, have oral argument and ultimately decide what they want to do. Now, in your I know you can't it, it, it's probably not much more than a guess, but do you have an idea of how long you think it'll be before you may actually be able to go into court for oral arguments? No, it's a it's a fair question, but I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't hazard a guess. I would think maybe by the end of the year. Okay. Now, in the direct appeals process, I know in, once you get into into habeas, when you're filing writs, everything gets automatically sent up to the the court of criminal appeals. In this case, on a direct appeal, is is the court of appeals decision the final word, or does that autom- I mean, I know that the state can probably appeal that decision, right? Either side can. Yeah, a fair question. Uh, under Texas law, if uh, you know, guess what? Somebody's going to lose in the Court of Appeals. So whoever loses has the right to petition the Court of Criminal Appeals and ask them to review it. It's kind of like going to the Supreme Court on a writ of certiorari. The court does not have to uh, review it unless it's a death penalty case. But, you know, the, either side can then ask the court to review it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So is it is that my is my understanding correct that that it once you're in the habeas side then it's an automatic jump into the court of criminal appeals or is that not accurate? Yeah, let me let me lay it uh, lay it out for you. So we go to the court of appeals on direct appeal. Either side can go to the court of criminal appeals, and then once the case is final, although you know uh, we could still go to the Supreme Court of the United States from that point. It, it was appropriate. But once the direct appeal is over, Bob, then it goes back to the trial court on a habeas. And from under Texas law, from that uh, decision or actually a recommendation, it goes straight to the Court of Criminal Appeals, bypassing the Court of Appeals. OK, yeah, that that was my choice. So that's it. In, in the in habeas, it goes back to the original court and then back up to CCA. And along those lines, so this case is a little unique in the fact that, as you know, Kathleen Zellner has joined the team and is and is working. But to to make clear to everybody, and you can probably explain it a little better than I do. I know I know you said you guys haven't worked together much on this because you're doing two different things. But essentially, she is proactively working on a habeas case simultaneously while you're working on litigating a direct appeal. Yeah, that's that'd be fair to say that. Yeah. So essentially, she's not going to have any any involvement in the the direct appeal side that you're working on now. No, uh, and and the reason for that is again under Texas law, you can't engage uh, or embark on the habeas path in the courthouse until the mandate of the court of appeals or court of criminal appeals issues. So you have to have a quote unquote final conviction, if that's where this ends up, and hopefully it doesn't, but if it does, if you, once you have a final conviction, then the habeas litigation can ensue, but it, it can't be filed, it can't be litigated, hearings can't be held uh, until the direct appeal is uh, at a conclusion. 
Well, I have to say, as as I as I bring us to a conclusion here, that while I'm I'm, I'm extremely thrilled that Kathleen Zellner's has joined the team and is working so hard, I, I feel really strongly about your argument, and I'm hoping and praying that uh, that we don't need Kathleen Zellner. Well, I, we, we hope that too, and uh, you know we'll we'll play together uh, as a team very well. But you know we're still very much in the fight, and we still are very uh, confident. Uh, that will get a uh, hopefully a good uh, decision in the Court of Appeals. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Fussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. Keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.